I want to begin just by saying what a joy it was last Sunday to be with you and to rejoice that the Lord granted you hearts to let me speak personally and openly. And I rejoice that the Lord brought immediate fruit, uh, not only through our budget vote, but through the fellowship meal afterwards, as well as conversations all week long. I look forward to what God will continue to do as we labor through 1 Timothy together and reflect on elders and deacons. I want to remind you where we were last week. Paul is the historic apostle chosen to build God's house. God's house is a people uh, made up of Jews who were the original receivers of his promises and covenants and Gentiles that are non-Jews who have been brought in to the faith. That, that is God's house, that people. And Paul was the apostle chosen to champion this good news to Gentiles, to people like you and me, most of us anyways. First Timothy is a letter to a mostly non-Jewish church in Ephesus. And the letter is specifically addressed to Paul's delegate, Timothy. And Timothy was sent to Ephesus to put the house in order. That's what we looked at last week. And you can see this command right there in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15. You can see it on your sermon handout, or you can look with me at 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, where Paul tells you why he's writing. He says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we don't have to wonder what should a church do or how should we order ourselves. What a gift God himself has given us, a word through the Apostle Paul. So Paul has written this letter to Timothy and Ephesus so that the church would know how to order itself. And that is so that it demonstrates and supports God's truth. That's the pillar and buttress of truth. So when the church orders itself the way God has designed it, it is then upholding the truth of God as it's called to do. Paul's main task for Timothy, we saw last week, is down in chapter 1, verse 3. Timothy must silence those who are teaching different doctrines because toleration of different teaching makes an obstacle for the church becoming loving. There's an immediate tie between sound doctrine and the goal of love. And if we tolerate minimization of sound doctrine or replacement of sound doctrine, what we're ultimately tolerating is some other purpose other than love. And so I charged us from 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 3, so that you, congregation, would see the elders and deacons that we put over ourselves in the Lord will determine whether or not we love. Who we choose to lead us, what they choose to guard or protect, will determine whether or not we love, as verse 5 says. What elders and deacons teach and support will determine whether or not we become a loving church. So now what makes this task difficult. This task will be difficult because it is possible for there to be a counterfeit love from the same Bible. When I was around eight or nine years old, I remember learning about fake money. I was at Stardust. I don't know if any of you remember Stardust. It was the skating rink over off Bobby Jones. Some of you do. Uh, around that time, I would spend a lot of time there, and I found out that if you hold a $20 bill up to the light... You could see that little strip in the 20, and that was how you knew if it was real or not. Uh, in, in the same way, choosing elders and deacons over us is weighty and a difficult task because telling the difference between truth and error 
is not so easy. Spurgeon said it this way, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. In our case, in identifying elders and deacons, we will need not to merely identify the difference between love and hate, but between love and what I'm going to call today unlawful love, as you'll see in the title of your sermon. Can you tell the difference between love and unlawful love? So today I want to show you two things that failure to appoint and entrust ourselves to faithful elders and deacons will result in two things. Number one, it will result in leaders who guard unlawful love, and it will result, too, in our eclipsing the glorious gospel of God's love. If we minimize this in our thinking and just choose good old boys that we know, two things could happen. One, we put those over us who guard unlawful love, and as a result, we replace or eclipse the glorious gospel of God's love. So the question today, church, is will we guard a culture of unlawful love or a culture of God's glorious gospel love? And I want you to think today in terms not merely in what the elders and deacons say or confess, but in terms of who, what, what are those men's affections about? Do the elders simply like managing? And so you put them up because you know they're a good manager. Do the deacons simply enjoy busy work or hanging out with friends? Or do their choices and leadership demonstrate that what they are most committed to is God's sinner-transforming gospel love? What are, the, what are the hearts of these men controlled by? Maybe their hearts are controlled by the need to keep tithes up. Maybe their hearts are controlled on how to keep everyone happy or how to entertain the kids. Are their personal cultures trying to produce sin-transforming gospel love, or have they departed to something else that is almost right? Are they ruled by unlawful loves or gospel loves? Today, you can think of yourself like in an episode of Pawn Stars, and you've, you've got a church before you. We've gone to Rick, and we're calling the expert, Paul, who is going to explain the difference between fake, unlawful love and Christ's glorious gospel love. First, unlawful love. Look with me at verses 6 to 10. Certain persons, by swerving from these, from verse 5, that would produce love, They've wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Right, so what is the effect of verse 3, of, uh, of the effect of the different doctrine that has spread in Ephesus? What's its effect according to verse 6? They depart 
from love. That's the effect. If because of verse 3 and the going forth of this different doctrine, these persons have departed from love into what is called vain or fruitless discussions. This is the same reason Paul sends Titus to Crete to set elders over the churches. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. He says, An elder, Titus, must hold firm to the trustworthy word. You'll notice that's down in our passage later as well. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's the same phrase there. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. For... There are many who are insubordinate, and here's the word, empty or vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are setting, upsetting whole families. You may not know this, but different doctrine can destroy households. I've seen it happen. I've seen people fighting over different doctrines. When, when legalism creeps in, people go to war, and it can disrupt households as well. The congregation in Ephesus was beginning to be filled with empty, fruitless talk. That is, talk that doesn't bear gospel fruit. Instead, it's divisive, godless speech. And the reason it's happening is there in verse 7. These certain persons advocate for their teachings for three reasons. Number one, they are self-appointed. You see there, it talks about they just want to be teachers of the law. So they're appointing themselves. Number two, notice it says they're ignorant about the things that they're talking about. So, so it's fruitless for two reasons. One, they've appointed themselves. Two, they don't even know what they're talking about. And number three, look at how they talk. They do so confidently. Confidence is not the same thing as accuracy. And so these people have appointed themselves as teachers over Scripture, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they, say they make their assertions boldly, arrogantly, and confidently. Church, may we be aware... Those who advocate for their self-appointed leadership come in every congregation. Many a small group, a small study, has led itself astray by tolerating self-appointed teachers who do not know what they're teaching. And they create division and havoc among congregations. Such self-appointed teachers, according to the Apostle Paul here, have departed from love. And they've departed from love because they have adopted what I've called unlawful love. I want to give you four statements about what unlawful love is before I show it to you in the text. What do I mean by unlawful love? Number one, unlawful love is deviation from God's definition of love. Number two, unlawful love is an application of love that God does not require. Number three, unlawful love is powerless to change sinners. And number four, unlawful love is moral rebellion. I'll give you those four things again, and I'm going to show you in the text. Number one, unlawful love is a deviation from God's definition of love. Number two, unlawful love is an application of love that God does not require. Number three, unlawful love is powerless to change the sinner. And number four, unlawful love is moral rebellion. Now look down at verse 8. 
And here is Paul's correction to these certain persons. First, he starts with where they agree, what's publicly known knowledge. We know that the law is good. In other words, he's saying publicly, this is a widely accepted fact. God's law is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, the almost right of unlawful love is that these teachers have the right text. They have their Bibles open. And that's part of why it's so deceptive is because their unlawful love stays close to the Old Testament here. Let's ask for a moment, what's so good about the law? What did Jesus say in Matthew 22? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Galatians 5 verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, what does the law do? It tells us God's requirement of love and what it looks like. That's what the law was. It was saying this is what it means to love God. This is what it means to love people. And it exposes when Israel fell short. God's law is love manifest in ceremonial and civil codes. God's law codified love of God and love of neighbor for Israel. So great. It's a great start. We're all on the same page. The teachers in Ephesus were teaching from the law. That's a glorious thing. But how have they departed from love if they're teaching from God's standard of love? Look at verse 8 again. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. I was running late one Sunday um, to church, and I ran outside to get in my truck, and I realized my trailer was still attached to the truck. So I said, well, it's too late to take it off now. So I I took off and and began to drive down Gordon Highway over here. Of course, no one's on the road, and uh, suddenly I began to notice some lights um, sparkling, flashing in, in the mirror, And so I look up to see what it is, and it sparks and almost like small flames shooting out from the back of the truck. I had forgotten to put the the pin in to hold the back gate of the trailer up. Instead, the metal gate fell down, and it dragged halfway down Gordon Highway and uh, shot sparks everywhere. Now, imagine an officer pulled me over asking, what are you doing? And I said, sir, the trailer's made to be pulled behind my vehicle. I loved seeing the sparks shoot out. I felt like Gandalf when he was walking through Hobbiton and shooting fireworks out the back of his trailer. The the officer would be right to say, that's not the point of the trailer. That's an unlawful use of the trailer. Yes, you're pulling it, but you're shooting fire out everywhere. That's not supposed to happen. Paul says the lawful use of the law is when you use God's law in accordance with the purpose God gave it for. The unlawful use of the law is to use it in a way, use it in a way God never gave it for or intended for it to be used. And you'll see the intended purpose down in verse 9. What's the intended purpose? Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
So what's the issue? God gave his law to expose and to restrain sin. But the false teachers here in Ephesus used the law unlawfully because they were using the law against faithful Christians. Those who had repented from their sin and were followers of Christ, these men had been twisting the text to condemn faithful, righteous believers. They were condemning faithful brothers and sisters because they had added to God's standard of love and they were measuring one another by what I will call unlawful love. Love God never required. Jesus said it this way in Mark 7. Well, did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold fast to the traditions of men. If you want to know what they were adding, you can see it in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. These false teachers were going to the book of Genesis, and they were forbidding Christians from getting married. They were forbidding the consumption of certain foods. And the problem is they were doing it all in the name of righteousness under the law. If you love God, you wouldn't risk your holiness by getting married. You saw what happened in Genesis 6 when they married. You, Christian, are unrighteous if you get married. If you're a loving person, you wouldn't eat that. If you loved God, young Christian couple, you wouldn't get married in a barn. You'd get married in a church. If you loved God, you'd host a fall festival. Adding to the law to wield God's standard of love against those who do love God. It would be like if the speed limit were 45 miles an hour, you're going 42, and a cop pulls you over. Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? No. Speed limit's 45. And you say, well, that's exactly why I pulled you over. You were going 42. You say, What? The purpose of the speed limit is safe driving. 45 and under is safe. You say, well, actually, you're supposed to go 45. That's an unlawful use of the law. The 45-minute mile-per-hour speed limit is not meant to make you go 45. It's to say 45 is the max for safety on this road. But you can so easily twist it and misuse it and fall into the category of unlawful use of the law. What purpose is there for God's law against those who are following Christ? There isn't one. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Against such fruits of the Spirit, there is no law. To add to what God requires, to get what we want out of a church or its leaders, is unlawful love. So why is the law given according to verse 9? Human beings do evil things. Christians are those who once were tied and enslaved to such things. See it in verse 9? The, pur- the purpose of the law is for the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I don't have time to go through all of those, but what Paul is doing there is he's saying, this is the category of people that the law was given for. And you'll notice it's the Ten Commandments, essentially, or applications of it. 
And what Paul is saying is, you're going to take Christians who got married or Christians who ate a particular food, and you're going to say they fit in with that? That's insane. If you're going to accuse these Christians of breaking God's law, you'd better use the law rightly. You'd better demonstrate they are, in fact, lawless according to these these vices here. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to accuse someone here that they don't love God or you, you'd better be able to show it. But notice the kicker in verse 10. He summarizes the Ten Commandments, and then he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What is he doing? Paul is taking the Ten Commandments, and he's saying those who advocate for unlawful love are in this list as well. People who advocate for extra-biblical definitions and applications of love that aren't required by God are the ones who belong on the list with those who murder, those who lie, those who are godless, those who are abusers of parents and sexually immoral. Do we have a category for such unlawful love? Do we have a category for the real moral danger of different doctrine? Paul is saying to this church, those who have championed themselves teachers of the law, God's standard of love, by adding to it, demonstrate that they're the chief violators of it. Now I want to ask you, church, to flip with me over to Romans 14 for a moment. Where does this take place in churches today? Romans 14, verse 5. Paul is speaking to a church where there's all sorts of despising one another going on. And he wants to show them what real love really is, or at least how it's not present among them. In Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to ourselves and none of us dies to ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And that's what makes this next part absurd. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Why do you take it upon your lips to say such and such didn't love me because they didn't do this? Or such and such doesn't love God because they didn't hold this festival? Why do you despise your brother or sister? Because here's the deal, Paul says. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
the unlawful use of of love or the unlawful use of the law is when you, brother or sister, try to add your preferences to your congregation and you judge one another when they don't meet your need, when they don't meet your expectations. And that's what Paul says is happening right there in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on one another? The unlawful use of love, church, we need to embrace this. Look at what happens in verse 10. You end up despising your brother or sister whom God has already judged faithful in Jesus Christ. Do you have no fear that you will stand before God for condemning somebody who is righteous by Jesus Christ? Do we not fear what our God has said about our brother or sister, such that we place them as our own servants under our own desires and wants? The one who binds their congregation to their expectations and conditions has employed unlawful love. If you go beyond what God requires, you are introducing a corrupt love, brother or sister, and you will be judged for it. And I want to plead with us for a moment to get this. I have received gracious love and mercy and grace in this congregation. But I have also experienced unlawful love. And I've probably given it. By no means am I without fault. I myself am not perfect. But I have noticed appetites for unlawful love among us been questioned about wearing flip-flops now i've not worn them in service but i wonder what would happen if i did i've been questioned for using an ipad during the lord's supper been questioned for not wearing a tie for not championing special music or not heralding easter or christmas all the things which i have continued to participate in even if below the par of some of your expectations I felt the weight of a multitude of accusations and emails while burying your loved ones, preaching the gospel, visiting your hospital beds. It's not just me. I have seen our deacons screamed at while faithfully serving. I have seen members crush one another for failing each other's additional expectations. Here's the danger with elders and deacons. Sometimes appointed elders and deacons Defend those who bind by such unlawful loves. There's the danger, the real danger I want to caution you against this morning. Those you put over you in the Lord, are they going to protect such unlawful love? Or will they be faithful shepherds and servants who are laboring to remove such unlawful love to make the love of Christ apparent among us? I don't tell you this because I want sympathy. I tell you this, church, because I'm jealous for our repentance. Repent from such unlawful love and measuring of one another. It does not matter how much you attach Jesus' name to something you like. Our unlawful love does not point each other to Christ. It enslaves one another to added traditions of men that you and I were never meant to measure each other by. So we go before Rick at the Pawn Star store. He's looking at the church and he says, I've got a buddy who deals in love all the time. I'm going to call him forward. And Paul says, you can tell someone's love is unlawful because they're willing to condemn you for things God wouldn't condemn you for. They demand more than God does. Elders and deacons, 
what is the standard that you require of these congregations, of these congregants? Are you upholding Christ's love? Are you defending against those who would add unlawful love? You are here to represent Jesus. Church, look for those whose hearts match the love of Christ, not unlawful loves. Now, I want you, church, to see in the second half why this is so tragic. What is so tragic about introducing unlawful love is that it eclipses and gets in the way of our seeing the glorious love that Christ has for us in the gospel. Look with me down at verses 12 to 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that is in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul wants you to see immediately is the historic inbreaking of God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Look down, you see verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. Paul says, Christ, 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 Christ. The center of his gospel is the God-man stepping into creation and changing people. We can expect transformation because Jesus isn't an agent of history books. He is the living, reigning, present king. He's not bound to be looked at on a picture on the wall. He is the living Christ who Paul met long after he was crucified. And so you notice Paul's difference in verse 12. The people in verse 7 are self-appointed. But who is Paul appointed by? Jesus Christ who gave him strength. That is, God's initiatory love moves first. In verse 13, what does Paul do? Because of God setting his love upon sinners, Paul actually fits into the vice list. You see that in verse 13? He lists his own vices. He was one who was a blasphemer. Not only that, he was one who killed Christians. He was an insolent, foolish opponent of Jesus. What's crazy is to read this alongside Philippians 3 when you see all the ways he thought he measured up to God's standard of righteousness and love. He's saying here in verse 13, I hated God when I thought I loved him. I thought what I was doing was truly right. I thought it was good for people. I thought I understood, but everything I did in the name of God was a total violation of what God had ever required. But what happened in verse 14? If you look down at verse 14, what happened? A tidal wave. He was hit with a tidal wave of unmerited grace and love and favor in Jesus Christ. 
He's speaking of the conversion that if Nate had kept reading, we would have eventually encountered. In chapter 7, Paul has just given a thumbs up to the murder of Stephen. Paul was supposed to be a defender of God's law. But Stephen, who was faithfully saying, your God isn't bound to these physical buildings. He transcends time and space. He never needed a tabernacle. It was him who built a house for us. And in declaring the truth of God to them, Paul, who was supposed to defend the law, championed his death. Do you imagine how we'd feel about a politician in our community if they had sworn off the death of one of our beloved deacons? You wonder how much hate we would have in our hearts towards that person if they did that to one of our many faithful deacons who serves week in and week out? Stephen was killed for lovingly telling the Jews God didn't need their temple. What a glorious, merciful thing Stephen was doing. And Paul had no problem seeing him stoned to death. Paul then would lead in Acts 8 verse 3. He would lead the charge into Christian households and he would arrest men and women and drag them off all because they were clinging to the name Jesus Christ. He was confident in his faithfulness to God. He knew what God, what love of God looked like, and he knew what godless unfaithfulness looked like, he thought. But down in verse 15, what he learned was, when Christ appeared to him, that he himself was condemned by the law as a sinner. In all his religious talk, he had never loved God. He had never loved people. And by appearing to him, when Christ called Paul to himself, Paul realized it. The Messiah came into the world to save sinners, whom Paul was the foremost. Loveless people like you and me. God-haters, people-judgers, substance-addicted, dopamine-hitting, narcissistic, self-interpreting, self-promoting people. That's who Christ came for. So Paul is saying, do you know what God's love looks like in a person? When somebody is hit by the mercy of Christ, it transforms them from somebody who once formerly murdered Christians to now giving everything he can to advance the good news of the gospel, to strengthen those glorious, wonderful saints. Not wonderful by their own measuring up, but wonderful because Jesus Christ loves them. What Paul is saying is he's saying, compare the two teachers. These people are telling you, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not celebrating what I want. You're not celebrating the way that I want. You don't love God and you don't love me. They crush you because you don't fit their added traditions. And in doing so, they reveal that they have departed from love. Paul was one of those. Disgruntled, angry, murderer, condemning Jesus' people. But now he says, I love you. I'm preaching the gospel to you. He says, I was loveless. I was self-righteous. I was arrogant. But now, because of Christ's mercy... Christ's overwhelming provision has called Paul to serve this church in Ephesus by defending the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul has been transformed where these teachers have not. They sat in church for years, and they're still as angry and bitter as ever. They add to the law, but Paul instead reminds them, Christ fulfilled the law for you. And he guards the church against those 
who would say, that's not enough. And don't miss the significance here. The point is for you and I, the point is for Ephesus to go, how on earth is it that Paul's writing us this letter? How is Paul writing this letter to these Ephesians? People he would have several years ago been happy to kill. It's because he met the living Christ. i use an illustration that Paul Washer has used, many of you have heard. Do you imagine we're all gathered for worship this morning? I come stumbling in at 11.30 a.m., just like this. Okay, sorry, guys, uh, I got out of my truck this morning, and as soon as I did, an 18-wheeler swerved off the road and ran me over. It's okay. I called the police, filed a report, and I walk in. Here I go. I'm ready to go. Thank you for waiting. You say, Taylor, you're a liar. No, I'm not. It just happened. You say, Taylor, you are absolutely lying. There's no way that just happened. I say, yes, it is. It just happened out there. You'd say, there is no way that happened for you to get hit by something so big as an 18-wheeler for you to be walking into this stage and now preaching to us. That's impossible. And Paul is saying, that's what happened to me. When you hit the tidal wave of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ, it is impossible for you to remain loveless. It is impossible for you to want to go back to the law and to add where God has now freed you. Now, if there are any of you in here who realize you have been that, or if those of you this, this morning who are wondering, how could God love me? Look down at verse 16. Look down at verse 16. Paul says, I received this mercy for this reason. So he's saying, let me tell you why God called me. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, talk, who were to believe in him for eternal life. That Greek word there, for example, where you might translate it hypertype or prototype. Paul says, you want to know the kind of people whom God has called into his kingdom? Paul says, look at me. I was one who once hated people in the name of Christ. I was once who car- one who once carried them off into prison to see them killed. I celebrated that. An enemy of God, a hater of God. And yet I was the kind of person Christ came for. I was the kind of person Jesus died for. And what Paul is saying is, if God can love me in Christ, friend, there is perfect patience in him for you. Come to him today. See Paul as your example. That's the only kind of people that are in this room. The only kind of people that are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven are those who once were haters, abusers, sinners, godless. But we are here this morning not because of what we've done, but because God's grace poured out for us in Jesus Christ. Church, when you fight over choirs or collars, when you fight over Easter or Christmas, when you fight over decorations... You hide the love of Christ for a cheap, unlawful love. And it's why you will be miserable. And I want you to see how inauthentic such a love is. It's like spray painting corpses. 
But isn't there a much more glorious love we can give to one another? Jesus' love does not flee from sinners. He flees to them. And he changes them from the inside out. Christ fills people with grace and love, not demands. Jesus produces tidal waves of love in us that overflows into love of God and love of others. And so I wonder if you see between these two people, if you see how much better Jesus' love is. Christ's love draws us to one another. It renews and it restores. So church, in selecting elders and deacons, do not simply ask, are they committed to managing and to keeping added traditions? Ask, is Jesus uppermost in their affections? Is their personal culture satisfied with the gospel? Do not ask how efficient or well organized they are chiefly. Ask this, have they been personally transformed by the living Christ, such that they share him personally. In other words, church, I commend to you from this text, ask if those men have truly been converted. Will they guard unlawful love, or will they guard the glorious love that comes from Christ? Have they been converted? That's what we want to reproduce, church. Let's pray.